Okay, who would say this? God has given me everything I need and I am content. God would say that. And lastly, who would say this? I can only be happy if I have everything I want. The world would say that. Thanks for playing. Take a moment now to just spend some time praying with your families. Ask God to help you each to follow his way, even when it's easier sometimes to follow the way that the world is telling us to go. This is now the fourth and last week in our series, Living the Unhurried Life. And we have been very privileged to have Matt Boda, who's the lead pastor at Rock Point Church, delivering these messages. I encourage you not just to listen and take in the information as he opens God's word, but also put into practice just the very practical stuff he's been talking to us about. Let's turn things over to Matt. From the moment you woke up this morning, you've been making choices. You chose to open your eyes, and sometime in the next 30 minutes, you may choose to close them again. You chose to get out of bed, you chose to take a shower, you chose what to wear today, you chose what to have for breakfast, and if you've gone through the day, you've made a whole lot of choices as to what to do with your life. Life is filled with choices. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the choices that living an unhurried life involves. Choices about owning up to the fact that hurry is an issue in many of our lives. We took a look at how spiritual and physical rest is important for us, about choices about margin and pace, choices about purpose and developing the ability to say yes and to say no to the right things in life. And this week, as we close out our series, we turn our attention to one last characteristic of those who live the unhurried life. You might call it living counterculturally, I call it living against the grain. Living the unhurried life involves deliberate and unpopular choices as to how we live our lives. And I want to show you three countercultural choices that the Apostle Paul makes throughout Philippians chapter 3 and Philippians chapter 4. So I invite you to take your Bible, get it open to Philippians chapter 3 as we walk through today. So the first choice that you need to make is a choice about where you find your identity. You may remember Chuck Colson or read of him, the founder of Prison Fellowship, who served as special counsel to, to the president during the Nixon years. Because of his Watergate involvement, he received a one to three year prison term and was assigned to serve it at Maxwell Federal Prison. In his book, Who Speaks for God, Colson actually takes time to talk about what it was like when he entered prison to serve his prison sentence. He wrote, I had a good collection of Christian books I had stuffed into my bag. The prison officials examined each paper, each book, and each personal item one by one. Then I was told that my wallet would be packed in my suitcase and returned home. I protested momentarily on the grounds that I might be called back to Washington to testify, and I would certainly need my identification with me. 
The officer explained that if I were taken back to Washington, I would be in the custody of marshals with a set of government orders, a government-provided ticket, and that I would need no identification. The wallet, curiously enough, was one of the most difficult things to part with. His words are very striking at this point. He writes, The wallet, curiously enough, was one of the most difficult things to part with. Why do you think that was? I think it was because... A wallet or a purse represents our identity. It holds the cash and cards that give us our buying power. It contains the most physical evidence of who we actually are. My identity is very wrapped up in my wallet and I feel alone without it. My wallet is simply one of the places where current culture tells me to find my identity. Think with me for a minute and try to answer this question in your own life. Where does the world you live in every day tell you to find meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment? You see, there are people, there are places, and there are all kinds of things that our world invites us to find our identity in. The Apostle Paul addresses this very issue of what we do about our identity. In Philippians chapter 3, he writes about the people, places, and things where he, living in the first century world, is tempted to find his identity and to place his confidence. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 says this, You know, I have some things that I am tempted to put my confidence in. In verse 4, In fact, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. What Paul is saying is this, there are a few things about my life that I am tempted to wrap my identity up in. As a Jew, I've done it perfectly, he writes, circumcised right on time, a fully-blooded member of God's people, the Hebrews. I belong to one of the most famous of Israel's tribes. I wasn't born in some foreign land. I haven't forgotten my native tongue. I've carefully kept the law of Moses. I took on anything that stood in the way of what I thought was God's will and plan. Paul runs down a list of things that anyone who is a Jew in his day would be hugely proud of. If you were looking at what he's writing, everything he writes is to the credit side of the ledger. Okay? But look at what Paul does with this impressive resume. Verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. Can you hear it? Paul is wrapping his identity around everything that has to do with Jesus. And he considers his resume, the list of symbols that, could, that he could have found his identity in, he considers it all garbage. And as he writes this, Paul models the first culture, culture, countercultural choice each of us needs to make in order to live an unhurried life. We must make a choice about our identity. Now, in answer to the question, where do I find my identity? Paul would answer, as we read, I find my identity in knowing Jesus Christ. The main thing about my identity is that my life is wrapped up in my relationship to Jesus. So, 
How about you? If we were to sit in and have coffee today and I were to ask you where you've wrapped your identity up in, what would you say? Is your identity wrapped up in money, making it, saving it, spending it, getting to the next level of living? Perhaps your identity is wrapped up in your career, working hard, climbing the corporate ladder, hitting the next level, getting enough service in to have a comfortable retirement. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in your education, hitting the honor roll, showing your competence in the classroom, graduating number one, or getting education done so that you can do what you want to do as a result of the money that you make. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in your family, your marriage, being a mom or dad to your kids. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in the pursuit of pleasure. Perhaps you are known to others by your favorite hobby. Perhaps you're always trying something new. Maybe you're always going somewhere new. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in personal achievement and competence. Your greatest goal in life is to be seen by others as a competent and very strong individual, someone who has it all together with no holes and no cracks in the veneer of your life. Finally, maybe your identity is all about having the right stuff, wearing the right clothes, driving the right car, living in the right house in the right neighborhood is very important to you. And if you're not there yet, you want to be. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Israel's ancient King Solomon warns about the danger of wrapping up our lives in the wrong things. He highlights a number of things, but on his list, he lists hard work, wisdom, pleasures, advancement, wealth, and lots of wives. All of them, and you could add your stuff to that list, all of them are meaningless because in and of themselves, they lack real value and substance and permanence. He concludes, Apart from God, all pursuits are meaningless. His conclusion was right then and it's right now. Education, pleasure, personal achievement, possessions. Apart from God, all pursuits are meaningless. You see, none of those things in and of themselves is wrong. But in and of themselves, they are meaningless. They become wrong when they become what we're all about, when they become our identity, because our identity was never meant to be placed there. Think this through. Perhaps you're a strikingly beautiful person with the right looks or body or hair or teeth. Please remember that beauty fades because bodies sag and lines appear, blemishes show up and hair falls out. Perhaps you're on the fast track financially. Please remember that money can shrink in a hurry as quickly as a pandemic can hit and a stock market can move downward. Please remember that fame can disappear. A career can be over before you know it. Health can be gone in an instant. And in each of those options for your identity, none of them are worthy of the greatness of your life. You are worth far more than those things. It is not worth wrapping up your identity in them. Only one person, only one place, only one thing is worthy of your identity. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. A place, as Paul puts it, in him, And this thing known as following Jesus. And that's why Paul writes, nothing is worthy of my identity except knowing that person and being in that place and doing that thing in my life. I will follow Jesus. Do you have any idea how much God wants you to find your identity in him? The 17th Psalm, verse 8, David writes a very interesting phrase in his prayer, his psalm to God. He writes, Keep me as the apple of your eye. That little phrase, the apple of your eye, 
is based on what happens when you look another person in the eye at point blank range. You see an image of yourself in the eye of the other person. The psalmist applies this to his relationship with God and writes, I can see myself reflected in the eye of God himself. Oh God, keep me close to you. Please hear this and hear this loud and clear. God wants you to live life so close to him that you are constantly being reflected in his eye, that your identity is constantly wrapped up in him, in who he is. So as the days of summer begin to draw to a close, where are you finding your identity? Let me give you a word of application. I can hear the rubber hitting the road. So here's my one word application for this point, And it's this, focus. 500 years ago, a man named Philip Melanchthon coined the phrase, the main thing is that the main thing stays the main thing. And if that is true, if the main thing in life is wrapping up in being wrapped up in a relationship with Jesus, staying focused as, uh, uh, as the apple of his eye, I want to encourage you this summer to keep focused. What are you doing to intentionally wrap your identity up in Jesus Christ? What space do you need to devote to following and knowing Jesus? And what unhurried time exists in your life and schedule when you are giving yourself to being the apple of God's eye? Countercultural choice number one, where you find your identity. Let's move to a second choice. And this one relates to what you do with your mind. Flip over in the scriptures to Philippians chapter four, and we read together in verse eight these words. A beautiful, beautiful passage. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. A paraphrase of the Bible, the message puts it this way. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do, be- you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling and gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. What Paul is telling us to do is decidedly countercultural because the world we live in prevents, presents a far different picture of what we should do with our minds. So don't get too uptight about what you do with your mind because you're free to think as you please. That's the way that our world thinks. They say there's no connection between what we watch and listen to and the state of our inner world. Don't worry about placing boundaries on what you watch or hear or give your mind's attention to. And yet, did you hear it? Paul tells us that we need to make deliberate choices about what we do with our minds, to fill our minds with what is true and noble and right and just and pure and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. Have you spent any time thinking about the connection between your spiritual life and the qualities of the entertainment you choose? Think about the music we listen to the videos we watch, the television shows we view, the movies we see, the books that we read, the magazines we page through. Do we think there's any connection between the quality of those things that fill our minds and the quality of our spiritual lives? We fill our minds with what is untrue and unrighteous and wrong and impure and worthy of no praise. And then suddenly I wonder to myself, Why do I find myself thinking like that? 
it reminds us of the truth. As followers of Jesus, we're not free to think as we please. There is a definite connection between what we watch and listen to and the state of our inner world. They deeply affect one another. The boundaries are important and what we do with our mind matters. And the scriptures are pretty clear cut as to what we should do with our minds. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or Ephesians 4, 23. Be made new in the attitudes of your mind. 1 Peter 1, 14. Be holy in all that you do. So let me ask you another question. In your pursuit of the unhurried life, what are you doing with your mind? What are you filling your mind with? What shortcuts might you be taking to get from here to there that need to be avoided in this area of your life? I want to give you another word of application. Last time it was focus. This time, as I hear the rubber hitting the road, I would like to give you the word eliminate. Let's talk about eliminating some things. And as we do, I want to connect what you do with your mind to the unhurried life. If it's true that the main thing is the main thing, is that the main thing stays the main thing, and yet we often struggle with keeping the main thing, our identity in Christ, as the main thing of our lives, some things need to go. An old spiritual master by the name of Meister Eckert once said that the spirit the spiritual life has much more to do with subtraction than it does to do with addition. I think he nails it on the head. This is a really key issue. The spiritual life has much more to do with subtraction than it does with addition. So if you often feel like a spiritual yo-yo that goes up and down with amazing consistency, I'm going to take a guess that the battle is being fought in the battlefield of your mind. And this issue of entertainment is crucial in all of our lives. And you only have so much room in your life for so many things. And the bulk of those things if the bulk of those things don't contribute to the quality of your spiritual life, those things need to go. Be ruthless in eliminating those things that don't contribute to the quality of your spiritual life. And if that has to do with screens or music or reading or internet or movies or games, if they're not contributing to the quality of your life in Christ, learn to say no. Learn to turn off. Learn to eliminate what isn't helping you to grow in Christ. And you may be pleasantly surprised how much time you have to help you keep the main thing the main thing. One last countercultural choice. As we pursue the unhurried life, it's important that we think through how we think about contentment. In his book, Love Beyond Reason, John Ortberg tells a fascinating story about contentment. He writes, once there was a young girl who, whose parents took her to the Shrine of the Golden Arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named the Happy Meal. May I have it, please? She asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her. The toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it's really worth and it's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she thought. She knew that they wouldn't just be buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little McVacuum in the core of her soul. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a happy meal. So she explained, 
I want that Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything before. And if I get it, I will never ask for anything ever again. No more complaining, no more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I will be content for the rest of my life. This seemed like a pretty good deal to her parents, so they bought it and it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse and he abandoned her with three small children and no money. The kids too were a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources and eventually left without a trace. And when she was an old woman, her retirement gave out and she had to live from hand to mouth. But she never complained. She had gotten the Happy Meal. She would think of it often. I remember that Happy Meal. What great joy I found there. And just as she had predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction. And she was grateful for the rest of her life. Obviously, I speak tongue in cheek. Life doesn't work that way. Contentment is an issue in many of our lives. I know that it's an issue in mine. We all love to dream about what we would do if we hit it big and if we could live life beyond we are right where we are right now. We're always looking for the next big thing, the next big fix. And McDonald's has built a huge empire based on it. Ever wondered why Ronald McDonald wears the grin all the time? Billions of Happy Meals sold. And it's not just kids. Ever bought a new car? Moved into a new house or condo? Got a new job, entered a new school? began a new relationship, and before long you discovered that there was this strange feeling that you've had many times before, which can only be summed up with the words, this isn't doing for me what it used to do for me. And the world around us just encourages this again and again. Get a new car because that one looks too old. Get new clothes because those are out of fashion. Move into a new neighborhood. Grab a new hobby, so forth and so on, to infinity and beyond. And as a result, we find ourselves racing through hurried lives, constantly searching for the next person, the next place, the next thing that will fill the discontented space in our lives. Well, Paul addresses this issue in Philippians chapter 4. Listen to the words that begin in Philippians 4.11. We read, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul reminds us that contentment, when it all comes down to it, is making a choice. Feeling content is not based on whether you've got lots or little. It's based on making a choice to determine that enough is enough and what you have is enough. And Paul points uh, to this third countercultural choice when he talks about contentment in Philippians chapter 4. So why be content? Every person who is a Christ follower has many reasons to be content. May I be so bold as to suggest a few. First, you have a body. And for the most part, it's likely that it works. Most of us have some or all of the following. Eyes that see, ears that hear, Tongues that taste, mouths that talk, noses that smell, and feet that walk. Two, God loves you. He calls you his child. Jesus came to teach and to live, to die on a cross, and to be resurrected because of you as an expression of the Father's love. Third, 
You have a place reserved in heaven as a part of God's forever family just for you. Fourth, you've been made part of a new community of people here on earth. Likely it's called your church and you're part of it. You belong, you're accepted, you're loved, you know and are known as a part of that community. Fifth, you've been given the Holy Spirit who lives in you, offering to you every possibility in helping you to follow Jesus. He wants to direct you and convict you, to teach you and change you. Sixth, you've been fitted with gifts, abilities, talents, and a personality, all created in you to allow you to make an eternal, unique contribution to what God is doing in this world. And even when you foul up, God promises to work through you in spite of your human frailty and mistakes. Oh my goodness. We have a hundred such reasons to be content with who we are and what we've been giving. So let me ask you one more question. What are you doing to pursue contentment in your life? What holes in your life are you trying to fill that will never be filled by the methods that you're using? Another word of application. I'm going to use the word commit this time. Why not commit to a spiritual experience in which you ask God to level out the lows by intentionally, deliberately, and consistently making the choice to seek his face to find your contentment in him. How about reorienting your spiritual life in such a way that you daily take time to slow down and live in an unhurried fashion, seeking God's faith? Where might that happen? When in your day might that happen? Your life was not designed to be lived without this God element in your life. So you see, Paul makes counterintuitive, countercultural choices when it comes to the identity he chooses, the mind and the way that he uses it, and contentment and how he pursues it. Have you ever wondered why some toys sell like hotcakes and other toys couldn't be given away if you tried? Years ago, the Discovery Channel spent an entire show asking that very question. They asked, What is it about those toys that have become the classic toys of all time? Why are they so wildly popular? The show looked at old classic toys like the Slinky and the Hula Hoop and the Yo-Yo. And during the show, a toy company executive was asked to explain how it is that great toys come into being. He answered with something like this. In my opinion, the best toys always break a rule. And then he went on to give some examples. He talked about the Nerf ball and explained that the Nerf ball was such a success back in the early 1970s. And what was the rule? What was the rule that a Nerf ball broke? Well, it was mom's number one rule after clean up your own room. No throwing balls in the house and yet buy a Nerf ball and you could do it all day. Okay. In 1964, the introduction of the G.I. Joe broke a rule as well. The unwritten rule in those days was simply boys don't play with dolls, but take a doll Put him in contact, fatigues, cut his hair short, give him a macho name, a chiseled face, and a toy gun, and rename it an action figure instead of a doll, and the rest is history. Little boys bought millions of them. Later, a classic toy was born called Mr. Potato Head. The rule on this one is easy. Don't play with your food. Nerf Balls, G.I. Joe, Mr. Potato Head. The best toys always break a rule. But I think that simple rule extends far beyond the making of toys. I think that rule has great application to life in our homes and cars 
in schools, in places of employment, in gymnasiums, in malls. I think that rule has huge implications for daily life in the here and now of life today. You see, we live in a world that's marked by hurry and worry, by anxiety and consumption. But when we break the world's rules and choose to live counterculturally, we live according to the life of abundance that God has offered us. When we live the unhurried life of purpose God designed for us, that will result in the best uh, life of all, the abundant life. And so our identity, our minds, our contentment, and all the different ways we live into a life that is unhurried is the life that God offers to us. And we're called to go and live it. So I'd like to take a minute and just pray for your church family and bless you as we pray. Lord, thank you for these lessons that we've looked at over the last few weeks. I am very privileged to be able to have taught. And there have been incredibly wonderful reminders week by week of things in my life that you are at work in. You have convicted me about different things and reminded me of the truth about different things. And I pray for my fellow follower, followers of Jesus right now who are listening as I pray. Brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and want to follow you. People for whom life gets busy and crazy, filled with anxiety and worry. And I pray for your blessing upon them. In these days of summer, in these days of heat in Alberta, we just stop and ask, oh Lord, that you would lead us, that you would remind us of things that you have been teaching us about living the unhurried life and help us to walk at a pace, help us to live in a way, help us to pattern our lives after your son, Jesus, so that we are truly your followers, representing you as disciples on mission together in a world that needs to know you. We bless you and thank you for your word and what you've been teaching us. And we pray you'd help us to live an unhurried life in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. It's been such a pleasure to be with you. Hope you're having a great summer. Blessing.